Welcome back to Therapy Insiders Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Got a pretty fun episode that covers a lot with uh, our guest, Don Reagan. Don takes us through his journey of almost burning out as a physical therapist to deciding he wanted mentorship on a different level. So he shares how he started to work with Greg Cook, was one of the first therapists, physical therapists at his clinic, and how he how that relationship evolved and how he built trust and how he really came through the, this whole journey of burnout to really finding his place in the profession. We talk about mastery, we talk about mentorship, we cover so many things in this podcast that I think will resonate with a lot of you. On a separate note, on a kind of fun note, a lot of you have been uh, giving your input on our intro music. So we're excited to introduce our new intro jam created by Michael Laviolette. Check out Mike on Facebook. Uh, we'll put all his information in our Facebook page and uh, as well as on the Updoc Media Therapy Insiders website. So we need to know, do you like the music or not after you hear it? So tweet at me at Therapy Insiders with yes or no. And why? We think you like it. Let's get into it. Here's Therapy Insiders. Before we introduce our new jam, here's a word from our sponsor, WebPT. Now, if you've been following any of the healthcare stuff, you know that reform, compliance, are very, very important and big deals and don't get talked about a lot. That's why you should check out webpt.com forward slash reform. So from ACA reform to MIPS, healthcare is changing incredibly fast. So you need to make sure you're prepared for every regulatory storm, and there are plenty. So watch out for the WebPT free webinar, Cloudy with a Chance of Reform, 2017 trends that will impact your rehab therapy practice. Get it, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs was a, was a movie. Anyway, in this presentation, expert hosts Dr. Heidi Jananga and Nancy Ham outline impending healthcare changes and explain how they'll impact rehab therapists such as yourself or your company. So check it out now. Again, the site, the link is webpt.com forward slash reform. It's a great webinar. Give it a look. It'll definitely clear things up for you. Check it out, webpt.com forward slash reform. And now... Let's get into Therapy Insiders with our new jam from Michael Laviolette. Remember, tweet at me at Therapy Insiders, yes or no. What do you think? Here we go. Hello, welcome back to Therapy Insiders Podcast from Updoc Media. Guys, all three of us back on. Um, I'm pretty excited to chat. One big, one big announcement that kind of started before we even started this podcast, this episode that's going to be already played for in the beginning, is we have a new theme song. 
Oh man, I didn't even hear it yet. Well, I shared it with you, Urson, on Slack, but you must have not listened. But but Joe heard it. <laughs> I did. It was. Um, it was. I didn't, it, I didn't hear the final version though. It, it was pretty much the same minus that last part that that was taken out. But it was it was created by a DPT student, Michael Laviolette, and um, completely original from scratch. And uh, I think he knocked it out of the park. It, it, it was awesome. It was. It, it the essence it was intense yet yet intriguing playful um but powerful which which i would say are four words that really <laughs> that really describe us <laughs> is that is that like our last review on itunes powerful yet playful yes insightful yet only slightly annoying <laughs> Completely <laughs> distracted. But look, look, we 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 are we, we are progressing. We we are moving up in the world. People would give us shit, or at least give me shit, shit about the music for a long time, <laughs> Adam Eakins. Um, and oh, his opinion doesn't count. <laughs> and it finally, we are. I think we are on a different level. We've leveled up in terms of our music, at least. I feel good about that. I feel good about that. All right. The All other right. Th- the other thing people usually give a shit about is that we take way too long in the beginning uh, with with uh, with our banter before introducing our guests. So um, I- I'm torn right now because I feel like we're we're on a good start to to like just a, a seriously long banter. Uh, that's the nonconformist in me. But as I say, let's just make this entire episode about banter and, and just like the last five minutes with our guest. Right. So. Um, Banter shortened. Let's let let's get into it, Urson, because and Joe, we we um, I recently had I was at CSM. This was I don't know how long ago, but um, and there there was a lot of talk from DPT students about a variety of topics that that were um, at the heart of of some of the conversations I had. A lot of them were actually dealing with uh, internships, dealing with uh, residencies, dealing with. Uh, more more soft skills and, and a depth that um, that that I was really p- pleasantly surprised to hear because we've been harking on it for a while. A lot of mindset, a lot of just focus on really mastering a lot of skills, and um, I think that that's a perfect leeway to kind of delve into with our guest, Thurston. So why don't you why don't you hit it off? Well, our guest is one of the first PTs. Uh, along with Ben Fung that I met on social media back Shout when I started blogging way back in the day. Um, and he and I he actually used to do old Google Hangouts and just like hang out. And I watched him do crazy kid strategies and how to like keep his kids compliant. Like he would just squirt uh, whipped cream in their mouths and to, to leave them alone. And, uh, you know, it, we got to get it to tell him the story about how he got Gray Cook to hire him. He's one of the only PTs that Gray ever hired to work in his clinic. Uh, allow me to introduce Dr. Don Reagan. He also works for FMS, among other things, and teaches strength and conditioning. He's a strength and conditioning coach and super strong man. He's got a really big, hearty laugh and an amazing beard to match. Welcome, Don. Thank you, gentlemen, for having me. So let, let's get into the important stuff. Tell us about your beard. 
Uh, it's it's everything. It, I guess it's everything. It is on on online. I mean, there's not much else to say about it. I have I've had it for a long time, and I don't plan on getting rid of it anytime soon. Do you feel it's, like uh, it enhances the clinical experience? Uh, it's actually longer than it's ever been, and I find that it's starting to get in the way of some manual techniques. So, um, I think I, I might actually have to trim it here pretty soon. Oh, I'd have to see a clear mm. picture. You definitely had it before hipsters were even a thing yeah yeah i actually pretty uh young coming out of pt school so i do think part of uh of my need to have a beard came from trying to appear older than i actually was and then you just can't get rid of it like once it's there it's there going going from beard to no beard it's just unheard of yeah it's kind of part of my identity now i like it so um urson urson mentioned that you started to work with with gray which obviously he, he's a big name and has accomplished a lot in the fields of kind of several fields right physical therapy rehab fitness so he's been all over what what drew you to to kind of that world and gray and and share that story that urson alluded to as well certainly gray was one of the uh first folks in our industry to really appeal to me um, because my background was in strength and conditioning in the weight room, um, did some competitive Olympic style weightlifting and powerlifting and got my first job in a gym when I was a sophomore in high school and have just worked in gyms throughout my academic progression. But I really enjoyed the way that uh, he discussed the role of movement in medicine and in performance. And it just found his vision um, to be to be really compelling and appealing. And so the first time I met him was at an AOMPT conference in Seattle when I was still in PT school and just really enjoyed the way he tied things together, the way that he saw things, how principally based he was. And I felt like he was a clinician that I could submit myself to in an apprenticeship format and get a lot of value out of that. So uh, when I had an opportunity to uh, work with him and collaborate in clinic, um, that was four and a half years ago that I started uh, running the, the PT clinic at FMS headquarters. And I jumped at the opportunity to uh, to really, you know, be hands on in the trenches with Gray and co-evaluate and co-treat for about a year, we worked together pretty regularly, and uh, it was great. It was really good. It it, it matured me <laughs> in a lot of ways. About how did you get how did you get him to notice you though? Because that's the part that you told me, and I thought was hilarious. I called it pulling a, a Costanza from Seinfeld. Hmm. I'm not sure what story I told you. Um, <laughs> I how think many, how many are there? So, yeah, so I was I was working about an hour north of Gray's uh, location in Virginia, and um, let's see, I see. I think I, I sent him a patient, uh, a young lady that I, I wasn't able to, to be successful with, and uh, went down went down with her to to see seek his opinion. So that was that was one connection. Um, uh, the university I was teaching at at the time, Gray was consulting with the track and field team. And so um, that was the first time that he had uh, proposed the idea uh, that um, came up to me at the indoor track and said that um, he had a clinic and he was looking for a PT to run it. And 
asked me if I'd be interested. And it, uh, it was, it was a cool moment. I felt like a, like a giddy schoolgirl. It was, uh, it was an exciting opportunity to work with someone that I had looked up to and, and, and wanted to emulate in a lot of ways. Yeah. I remember I actually called you and, um, cause you just put it, you put a tweet up on it and I was super excited for you. I was probably almost excited as you were, uh, that you got to work with him. But... Probably, probably not as much. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, probably not. But, uh, the way I remember it is that you actually told me there were a couple times that you just like after an FMS that you attended with him or after some of yeah. that you saw him teach, you would just, you would just hang out, you know, you just keep yeah, hanging out that's and true. hanging out. And hanging out um and just basically always being like on the present so that he had no choice but to really engage with you and, and you're an engaging dude anyway it's not like that wouldn't happen but i mean if you just would have left or been like hey you know we should email or text or whatever it just wouldn't happen so sure like, that's uh, true yeah i think about um about five or six years ago i was at an fms summit at duke university at washington duke Inn, and unfortunately they don't they don't do these events anymore but it was uh it was a big kind of week-long thing and they offered all their courses and uh had a mentorship and i think um that's true i think i take my first sfma course at that event and um i just couldn't get enough uh, i think I, I i remember at the conclusion of the course um you know a bunch of folks were still staying around and um I lived just a little couple hours away. So I just kind of stuck around until everyone else was, was going to leave and um, had an opportunity to watch Gray. He was talking to one of the uh, other SFMA instructors, Alan Tomzikowski, and we're in the foyer of the Washington Duke Inn. And um, I'm, I'm kind of just watching third party kind of awkwardly. And they're, they're face to face. And Gray puts his hands on Alan's neck, on his, on his head, actually, his face. And he starts to... Uh, kind of move him passively, kind of manufacture a, a barrier, and then he uh, does a high-velocity, low-amplitude thrust in standing, face-to-face, man-to-man. And I had never seen that before, and I thought that was uh, just the coolest thing. And so I just remember, like, jumping in and going, like, do me next. Like, I want to <laughs> feel that. I had just never seen someone do that before, and I wanted to learn that skill. And so... Um, yeah, that was one of my uh, one of the, fir- the first so, impressions. So when we meet face to face. Yeah, absolutely. So he just like face palmed the guy and just shoved him. <laughs> um, you know, uh, hand on each side of his uh, of his head of his cranium, sort of cupping his ears. Yeah. Hmm. Was it a ro- rotational twist or uh, like a yeah. traction? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No ro- rotation, multi lever rotation. Yep. Hmm. So you kind of like Van Dammed him. Yeah, or Seagal, I guess. Yeah, Seagal, yeah, M- minus the, the the death and the and the vertebrae sticking out. Right. Yeah. You, you got to be drinking the Kool-Aid to let somebody do that to you, I think. I mean, you got to be on board. Very true. Very true. Very interesting. So so at, as you um as you kept as you started to work with with Gray and kind of integrating that in that model, how was that first year? What did what did you learn? And how did that relationship evolve clinically and and in the mentorship um, respect? Because we get questions on mentorship a lot, so be be cool to hear your perspective. Sure, I, I spent a lot of time studying mastery 
like the the process of mastery because uh, Gray would say to me a lot, like you, you know, you need to embrace the process. You need to be patient with the process. And um, you know, I think being with Gray, who's you know uh, obviously a leader in our in our field, you know, there was a the platform of that was very appealing. And I think there were times, especially early on, where I got distracted by. Uh, like, for example, in my first year, Gray was one of the keynote speakers at IFOMT in Quebec City. And I thought, wow, how how cool is this? And I'm, I'm working in clinic with one of the keynotes at IFOMT. And I think I would get sort of sort of stargazing or mesmerized by that um, too often. And so I started to study mastery. And one of the things I, I uncovered is that there's a difference between apprenticeship and mentorship. In fact, there's a very important difference. And I think we overutilize the word mentorship too much. And so my first year with Gray, I wouldn't call it a mentorship because uh, I was I was so um, like kind of young and, and, and really had had such little uh, skill set to offer um, that I really I apprenticed in, in those days that we co-evaluated and co-treated. And by that, I mean that it was a it was a fairly unilateral relationship where I submitted and I, I operated a lot like a uh, a technician or an assistant. And I was just happy to be in the room and, and watch Gray communicate and interact with patients to cultivate therapeutic alliance, to do pattern recognition uh, between cases and see things that I didn't see. And uh, I was I was really quite quiet. I had, uh, I had very little uh, to offer that year, and I was happy to just learn how to think and learn how to practice. Because uh, up until that point, uh, the positions I had prior were uh, service-based uh, clinics. It was about, you know, billing units and, and seeing patients and um, being productive. And it wasn't about solving problems and it wasn't about giving people solutions. And so the way that Gray would walk into a room with such confidence and talk about solving problems was something I really wanted to be a part of. As um, as this relationship evolved, as you kind of went from that, at some point the transition had to have happened, right, from apprenticeship to that mentorship level. Because I, I, I totally agree with you. I think true mentorship, and I think there's levels of mentorship. Um, there's there there's value. I think the the deepest mentorship is when the mentor has an investment in the mentee, um, and, mm -hmm. and and you see it as that investment. So when did that happen and when did that happen and how was that trans transition when Grace saw you as an investment and how did that move forward? Sure. Well, it, it transitioned when uh, Gray and I decided that it was time for me to be independent, you know, for, for him to step out of the clinic, that his presence was actually taking away from uh, patients buying into to my, uh, my leadership into me being the primary provider when folks would go, no, I'd rather schedule on a day grace here. You know, that's when it kind of got to a place where we, where, where it was starting to limit my growth and my ability to run the clinic. Um, and so that's when we, that was about 10 to 12 months in when, when gray and I decided it was, it was time for him to, to step out. And he's a very busy person with a lot of, a lot of things that he's involved with. And so I think the, the relationship, uh, our relationship continues to evolve. Uh, every time I, I speak, um, you know, at a conference or a symposium, um, I, you know, I usually run it by him and tell him kind of what, what my agenda is and what I'm going to discuss. And he uh, he gives me some guidance. Um, there's occasionally there's cases that we continue to collaborate on. And 
Um, but the, the, the relationship right now is, um, um, is, is about like that. It's, it's kind of checking in and seeing how you're doing. Um, but with him being uh, so focused on, on a lot of his other endeavors, um, I think I'm proud that, you know, I've, I've had a chance to work with Gray's family with his daughter has interned with me. Uh, he's sent me a lot of people that are close and important to him. And so I know that those are, those are ways of, of him validating me. Uh, Gray's a pretty old school guy when it comes to, uh, practice and work. Um, there's not, uh, there's not a lot of like feel good moments. Um, you know, a lot of positive, you know, verbal affirmation and that's, and that's okay. Um, so the, I think, I think that's a relationship that I will continue to value and have for the rest of my career. And I know that gray is, is available and accessible to me. And, um, that's something that I, that I appreciate. That's great to have Joe, Joe, have you done FMS or SFMA? Uh, I did the FMS. I didn't do the uh, SFMA um, yet. What'd you think of it? I thought it was good. I, I, I you know, I just, uh, I actually took some um, refresher type uh, courses at this uh, last personal trainer conference that I went to last weekend. And, uh, you know, I, I think that, um, the principles are, are all good. I, I I don't think that the FMS uh, as a screen fits well with the patient population that I treat, but that doesn't mean that the, there's anything wrong with the screen. It just means that um, I find I find that I use parts of it, not not the entire screening process, um, which. Uh, in a different population, uh, I might be able to, to, uh, more, it might, might be more beneficial for me to use, use the whole thing. Hmm. Um, but I, I think it's, I think it's a good, good tool. Um, and I think that, uh, what Don was saying about, uh, a, a systems approach and having, having, having a system, um, I think that is, that is something that uh, is is very useful with with the FMS, and um, I've I've heard I've heard good things about the SFMA. I just haven't uh, haven't done it yet. Don, what's the bi- what's the what's the biggest difference between SFMA and FMS? SFMA is a lot more detailed. It's more for the clinician to tease out painful patterns from non painful ones. Uh, to uh, I think continue to collect all the, you know, kind of data, like looking at the, pa- the patient as a whole, but then uh, narrowing in on uh, what do you think is really driving their, their movement problem or their pain problem. And uh, I, I like it for, for a couple of reasons. I think it helps me to be holistic. It helps me to capture a lot of information um, effect- effectively and efficiently. Um, and it's also, I think, helped to expedite my journey towards mastery in the sense that I can, I recognize if you look at the same patterns, generally speaking, the same patterns over and over and over again, uh, with people, I think that it, it helps to, um, to see things, um, you know, and be able to parallel cases between one another. Um, so I think it's, it's really good for the novice clinician to, um, test, retest movement patterns, just as well as test, retest local biomechanical examinations. Right. 
I, I would say that both systems are good to have for the novice clinician, but it, but like most things, if you jump into that right away because you're following someone like you or myself, I used to talk about both these things um, a lot online when, when you and I were talking regularly, is that uh, if, if you get into it and that is your only system, then you you often don't have something to fall back on. So, sure. yeah, because Mike yeah, Arnold has I, talked about a lot about this too. You know, someone gets really heavily invested into PRI or MDT or anything. It's kind of like, sure. oh, this isn't working or, or people aren't, the screen isn't showing me anything or people can't even do half the movements in the screen. Like they're failing them all, you know? Right, um, right. So uh, you do have to have something to fall back on, but but if you do have things to fall back on, or if you just had a decent size tool bag to begin with in both assessment and treatment, I think it, it does it definitely cuts down on what otherwise would have been a probably lengthy evaluation and helps you recognize those clinical practice patterns faster. Certainly, I know one of the mistakes a lot of folks make in their first SFMA course they. They come home and the first thing they really they get back in the clinic Monday and the thing that they really took away from the course was multi-segmental rolling assessment on the floor, like the the whole course two or three days and they're they're in clinic the first week watching folks roll, and um, not really appreciating uh, the principles and and the the depth that uh, SFMA has to offer with it being a pattern based approach. I think a lot of folks also get, get stuck in looking at patterns and then, then throwing away their local biomechanical testing, their palpation, um, their palpatory assessment. And that's a, that's a really interesting um, phenomenon because the instructors say clearly that, that this is part of your exam, that you still need to do neuroscreening, that you still don't need to assess breathing. You still need to, to look at local biomechanical examination findings, but um, oftentimes people uh, start treating off the top tier or maybe get to a breakout position and then treat the treat off the breakout without really going further and differentially diagnosing joint from soft tissue uh, problems. How do you, um, with, with the continuing emergence of biopsychosocial model and pain sciences and, and, and more, more awareness of, of of that integration and um, and really really a focus on it. How how do you integrate stuff like that? Because to me, I look at SFMA and even MDT to some extent as opportunities to show people and give them awareness of movements and patterns. Because we see we see patterns very differently than our our patients and clients do, and there's there's usually disconnect because we look at it, look at it as a as a, as a very biomechanical, clinical mm-hmm. uh, piece of a puzzle. To them, it's, it's their life. It, it, it's pieces of, of a much greater puzzle versus, you know, anatomy or, or a movement pattern. Uh, t- to me, I see it as an opportunity to give people awareness of these patterns, and I think that enhances a biopsychosocial approach. What do you think? Absolutely. I, I, I think I saw something recently. I think it was Aaron Swanson who... Uh, qu- quoted something as an effect of biopsychosocial, you know, has always mattered. That the patient matters, their values, their expectations matter. And to watch Gray practice, that part is natural to him. That's so easy to him to build rapport and and connect with other human beings. That um, that's just an automatic aspect to his practice. Um, 
and and I think to mine too. I think that's one of my strong suits is emotional intelligence. I like uh, baselining people's movement because it does equalize the locus of control. That it's not just about what I feel or what I observe, but we can uh, both observe that you know you can forward bend better than you can backward bend. And maybe one causes pain, one causes their pain, and one doesn't. One actually feels good. And, you know, making, having the patient follow that breadcrumb trail with you, I think has been really helpful for me as I'm not particularly a good salesman. Uh, I have to believe in what I'm, what I'm providing for my clientele. And so when they can, they can process with me and watch me uh, together, we can work together on, exploring their their movement and what things cause them pain and what doesn't uh i think it's a it's a it's a partnership it's um it's it's enjoying to it, it's a lot of enjoyment for me and empowering my patient to say hey you know there's things i can do that i wasn't sure that i could or look how much better i've gotten and so it's less about how are you feeling today and more about let's recheck that pattern that we've isolated as a biomarker for your back health or for you know your situation I like that uh, equalizing or normalizing of the locus of control where I came up in a, a manual therapy, heavy manual therapy school that uh, really emphasized uh, test retest at the local impairment level, having a tissue specific diagnosis. And then it really depended on how I felt, you know, that inner spinous space was, was moving or changing. And that's still important. That's a part of my practice, but, um, if a lumbar spine is, is stiff and, and, and it needs to move better, um, I want to baseline it in a standing movement pattern and then treat it on the table and then reassess it in standing. I think that has a lot more value for my patient and it's a lot more objective for me. Well, I don't think that, I don't think that makes you a bad salesperson. I think that makes you a really good salesperson when, when you sell what you believe in, you know, you, you focus on products and, and and um services that you can justify to yourself and the customer that just that just makes it a lot easier to sell sure absolutely if, if that's how you define salesman i, I do salesman, i do uh, I, don't, salesman. I don't define salesman as as a car salesman even though some of them are pretty fine at this point it's it's not selling something you don't believe in. To me, to me, sales, especially if you read Dan Pink and, and followed any any of the stuff that we talked about before, it's we're all in sales, and I think PTs are are the are the worst best salespeople in the world because we're clinically trained to connect with people and kind of get them to do things that they don't want to do, even though we know it's in their best interest. And we tell them and we educate them and we guide them to that point because we know. They will, they will be better for it. And I think that makes us incredible salespeople. Yet, yet with self-guilt sometimes because we feel like we're selling. So it's, it's towing that line. Uh, but in ter- um, speaking of self-guilt, Urson. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> Just twiddling my thumbs here, sweating. <laughs> uh, let's, uh, let's talk about... Um, Science, the research about this because um, not not to kind about of focus not not to really focus on FMS too much, um, sure. but but movement patterns and and this kind of predictive um, treatment philosophy can we can we can we predict anything even if we know a pattern um, does oh. that really tell us <laughs> anything can we say that these patterns will cause X Y and Z or that you have this therefore that. 
well, if, right, if we take away certain aspects of tests that the FMS use or the SFMA may use, certain patterns may predict, say, running injuries specifically, um, if you're doing like the, the split squat test um, or the, uh, or, you know, the standing hurdle, hurdle test, but most of them do not really. Like the standing one-legged crane upside yeah, the down step twist. Is, is, is on the FMS. I just can okay. never remember what the split squat one <laughs> I'm just is. I'm just making sure. Don, what's it called again? The one where you have the inline lunge. Right, inline lunge, right. Right, because it's in line. So standing on a line, right. Yeah, I think they are have been shown to predict potential injuries and in runners like runners who fail those tend to have higher incidence of injuries, but by and large, it's pretty hard to predict who will be injured. And it's it's a lot easier to predict, I think, who is going to get back to their sport once injured and, and what what is a good injury prevention program overall um, in terms of exercise or strengthening um, like FIFA has a bunch of, you know, preventative injury things for soccer players. And um, we know things that may prevent potential ACLs hairs, but in, in terms of being able to screen these things and predict them, that's, that's tough to say that, uh, at least according to the research that um, any one screen does it, a movement screen or, um, you know, a particular test would predict a specific injury. What about you, Joe? Do you, do you approach things from an injury prevention or reduction or just um, let's just get you moving as best as possible and see what happens? Well, the, the thing about the screen is that the, it allows you to see side to side differences uh, that that end up setting people up for for injury. So I mean that that is that is one nice thing is that uh, you know you can you can hone in um, on some of those discrepancies. Um, but I I I will say that um, most of the time I'm I'm using it for. Uh, uh, to to screen out a higher level movement pattern in some of my my more athletic clients, um, and then I'm trying to use some of the correctives in order to uh, kind of re- rebuild that pattern uh, and get get them moving in a in a um, in just a just a better better movement pattern. That's all. So uh, that, I mean that that's how I use it, but. Um, I think that uh, you can you can you can go as deep down the rabbit hole as as, as you want. I mean, there's there's people that that do that kind of solely do it. Um, I, I think that uh, it's it's a it's it's another it's another systemat- systematic approach that's that's out there. Um, and and it's uh, it's based in in functional functional movement uh that, that we do all the time and i i do i do like don's point um you know why 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 wouldn't you check them in a movement that they that they uh do in standing you know why why wouldn't you 
uh, use some other techniques. And then, I mean, that's what you're doing at a reevaluation. You're, you're reassessing, uh, whether they, whether they, they've met their goals. Can they, can they do what they wanted, what, what they couldn't do at their initial? Uh, so yeah, you gotta, you gotta retest those things in, in a standing functional position. Well, I think you kind of nailed it is that you, you, you kind of make it what, what you want from it. And, uh, probably like anything else, it, it runs the spectrum of, of zealots, you know, kind of using it nonstop and the tool being the treatment versus kind of, uh, it sounds like Don, you, you use more of an eclectic kind of integrative approach, kind of like you use manual therapy and the movement and neuro and, and kind of combine it everything right so there there's always a spectrum of, of uses and how how it plugs in into your practice so how how, how do you integrate um, fms sfma movement screens how, how does your how does your treatment approach flow well movement assessment i think is a is a huge part of of my practice and so uh, aside from you know the initial uh, subjective history taking, which is, which is crucial, um, you know, building rapport. And then that, and that, that segue into the objective clinical exam is going to start with medical screening. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of neuro screening, um, cardiac, anything else. And, um, and then we go right. And this is what, I, where I think it, it provided value for me. And what I was, what was appealing to me is that, uh, we start with movement testing. So start global, start, start abroad, take into account the entire patient with a top tier SFMA, and then start to funnel down as Mike Raymond talks about from Duke DBD, start funnel down to both maybe their area of pain um, and or the area that you, you know, feel like is, is maybe driving their pain. And then it, you know, it's going to continue to get back to that local biomechanical testing and, becoming more tissue specific, trying to identify what, what area or what, what thing I, I need to focus on to try to treat first. I, I try to put, you know, my findings in a hierarchical order, my, my impairment findings and layer feedback loops between local findings and, and part findings and pattern findings. I find that that, that really helps me and the patient to quantify uh, change. Um, it, you know, if, if we're on the right track, if we're, we're targeting the right the right, uh, the right areas to treat. Yeah, that makes sense. What about you, Orson? I mean, that kind of sounds similar to, to your philosophy. Right. Um, it, it's hard because, you know, I'm always conflicted about what I read in the research and what I think is just best for the patient because, you know, it, it is very easy to use something like um, and either one of the top tiers. I like the SFMA, but I do my own variations of it because I think the breakouts are just too much. But, um, you know, it, it's easy to, to see asymmetries that matter and asymmetries that may not matter. And, you know, the more active the patient is, I, I think that I tend to look at asymmetries that are a bit further away. And, uh, you know, sometimes they may be related, sometimes they're not. And there's only there's only so much research that you can read and, and they can't possibly prove every single thing. But if I think that it's absolutely if I think that something is driving their pain or sensitizing a structure, even if it's more distal, like if I think like someone's lack of tibial internal rotation on the left is uh, contributing to their back pain because uh, when they when they swing um, from the from the back swing to the forward swing that, you know, it, it's they're over-rotating at their back 
because they, they have a lack of tibial IR, I'm absolutely going to cause that, or I'm going to, you know, go after that and, and explain how that could be sensitizing their spine. But, you know, if it's in like a, if I find that in the same screen in a uh, desk jockey who basically his only activity is walking to his car and then walking to his computer and then walking back to his car and then sitting on his couch, I may not address that, you know, if he mostly has upper quarter asymmetries and I may not even screen the lower quarter. And, and that's just my bias, depending on whether someone is, is really active or someone is uh, mostly sedentary. Um, but, but I do... I did have a question for you, Don, uh, because I, I saw that the FMS just announced that there was like uh, some sort of FMS modified for sedentary or FMS modified for older individuals. Um, mm-hmm. what, what, how does that work? What is the, um, they just drop certain screens out or they just modify the screens? You know, I'm afraid that I, I, I'm, I, I'm not current with that. I, I saw the video, but I haven't watched it. I, I'm not sure exactly what they what they've rolled out. Um, I, I would assume that it has to do with uh, probably looking at the leg raise and shoulder mobility first, but um, I really don't know much about it. Do your okay. own research, Erson. <laughs> well, I just thought I would speak to someone on the faculty first, but yeah, I guess uh, I'll Google it like everyone else. Like Go to the that, Google. Right. Just the like how Google. when people ask me questions, it was like, oh, have you ever heard of Google? Yeah. Is what I think, up. but then no. I just happily answer it for them. Go look it up. Um, I will. While um, while while Urson is uh, going to the Google, um, Donna <laughs> and I feeling to, guilty, exactly as you should, as you should. Uh, I wanted to finish out with uh, you, you've uh, you mentioned a couple times, and I've seen you tweet about this, um, the topic of mastery, and th- there's a lot of a lot of ways to approach mastery, um, but I think y- yours is a very specific um, kind of philosophy perspective on it. Um, First, let, let, let's set it up, kind of describe what the concept of mastery is, um, h- how you got interested in that philosophy, and kind of what you've learned so far from it. Well, um, like I said earlier, that Gray challenging me to embrace the process, to fall in love with the process. Uh, you know, what what did he mean by that? And, and that's what started me on reading Robert Greene's book, Mastery, and then I read George Leonard's book on Mastery. And then uh, I started taking students and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm proud to say that I've, I've had 18 graduate students over the last couple of years and watching students from different programs and different places and trying to meet them where they are and, and help them to become the best clinicians possible. That that uh, laying out the groundwork for mastery is, um, has been really helpful in putting a framework to how do you get good at something? Because I do think there is a an optimal uh, process for becoming good at, at anything. And I, and I think the, the basic uh, concept is that no matter what industry you're in or what profession you're in, there is a, there is a process to becoming uh, good at it, to becoming an expert. And the process, uh, and, and, and this is just my own kind of perspective on it, it starts with introspection, identifying your talents and your passion, um, followed by getting some basic level of, of education, um, followed by an apprenticeship where you're really submitting to the master. You're, you're, you're uh, submitting to an expert who practices or you know, does the thing you're interested in at a level that infatuates you, uh, followed by um, a mentorship. And, and of course, this is sort of a circular thing. I mean, you can have multiple mentors, and I think your mentors are going to evolve and change as you grow. 
but eventually the the end is uh, is creativity. Uh, in my mind, mastery is skill plus creativity. And uh, you know, a lot of folks skip the skill and, and go right to creativity. Um, but I think there's a there's an obvious difference uh, in someone's social media presence or in you know going to watch them practice or uh, going to their con ed course and seeing uh, the combination of skill and creativity. And I think that's that's really special. Uh, it's really really appealing to see someone uh, be able to combine the traditional skill set of being a physical therapist with uh, their own you know unique perspective or twist on it. And so that's in general the steps. And um, I think that uh, differentiating between them um, and identifying who would be uh, a good person to apprentice under and who would be the right person to uh, mentor in various domains of your life, I think is uh, has been a very helpful framework for me to um, to keep myself accountable and to keep moving in the right direction. Yeah, that's great. There's um, <clears throat> the the Robert Green book is great um, mastery, and I, I think like it's it's been great recently with um, if there's. If you if you kind of look if you combine three books I think if you combine Mastery by Robert Greene you combine Grit by Angela Duckworth and you combine Originals by um, Adam Grant and you kind of read them in in so kind of succinct one from another in, in succession uh, starting with Mastery then going to Grit then going to Originals I think all three of those really really put it together. Um, and I think it creates a really good mindset and how to how to really how to get better. And I think a lot of that comes if you look at a pattern between all three of them, a lot of it is perseverance and passion. It, it's knowing what you really want to do that you what, what you really have to do and then keep going. Because to me, like per, passion without perseverance leads to burnout. Perseverance without passion leads to a shitty life that you're just miserable. Um, so you gotta you gotta have have to have the two, and they're not always in balance, but they always have to be present, and uh, to kind of keep you push pushing forward, um, which it, it's tough, right, Joe? Especially when you when you're running a business, when you have kids, when you have other things going on, but you kind of have to have something lit underneath to really really propel you forward sometimes. Yeah, you gotta keep keep working, keep grinding. Uh, I mean, it it's not easy. If it's easy, everybody do it. For me, mastery is the key to engagement. Um, so that you know, that, that's that's really where I started to to pursue it was because you know trying to look at some long term goal of where I wanted to be in ten years or twenty years or how I wanted to be perceived by my by my colleagues or my community that just seemed um, too much, seemed overwhelming. But um, I find that that you know when I identify weaknesses in my practice and my skill set. Um, and then systematically go about uh, identifying them and, 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 and correcting them, getting better at those things. I find that, um, you know, I'm, I'm, if I'm learning, I'm excited to, to be there. And so in a lot of ways, um, mastery has been that, that engagement for me. You know, I think we, we call it a lifelong learning. I think a commitment to mastery is, uh, in, in, a, in a lot of ways, I think what our profession needs to, uh, continue to to really um, embody and and reach the goals that that we have as a profession to be autonomous to be 
seen as uh, the movement system expert. Um, I think that um, we have a lot more mastery to achieve and to display to uh, the public and to our healthcare colleagues. I like it. I think that's a good way to close it out. Um, Urs, closing thoughts? Well, Don, I just, I just wanted to uh, give you kudos, Don, because I, I remember so long ago when you would just you were calling me and you were worried and you were in, you know, some of those fresh PTs situations where you were not happy with your job or, you know, with the fact that the, the quality of care, not your fault, but, you know, I don't know if it was like other clinicians or people. No, no, Urson, it was my fault. My skill set was poor and I was frustrated with that because I was trying to find PTs who actually knew what they were doing. Right. And I think it, it, that, that, that drove me crazy. It pissed me off. And that really, is what motivated me to get better. I was ready to leave the profession altogether after my first year of practice. My first job yeah. was so poor, uh, high volume, poor quality that I was going to jump into academia because I could teach and I could teach at the undergraduate level. And I was ready to leave practice altogether. I remember. Uh, and, I think, and, that, and that's, that's primarily because, you know, I, back to the salesman idea, uh, when people don't know what they're doing, they're, they're, they're overselling. And that's what I felt like. So I felt like I didn't know what I was doing. Therefore, I was just stuck trying to sell folks a plan of care and a diagnosis and a prognosis that I didn't actually believe in because I didn't know what I was doing. And I that was that was extremely frustrating for me. And that's what uh, has, um, I think, inspired me to, you know, find solutions, you know, to to take, you know, I guess to sort of find the gritty the gritty path. And, um, you know, I never thought that going to a community of less than 1500 people in rural Southside Virginia would be the place that, that I would, I would treat elite athletes, um, or have a very diverse patient population of people that I had regularly have folks on my schedule who are driving an hour or more one way, multiple hours, uh, to be, to be under my care. And I never thought that, um, that that would come in a rural community. But anyway, just back to this idea that it wasn't, it was just, a, it was a lack of confidence, a lack of my skill set, a lack of, uh, of really seeing mastery in PT by my colleagues and wanting, wanting more and believing that there was more to our profession uh, than just intervention. I didn't want to just be an interventionist. I wanted to be a diagnostician. I wanted to be a problem identifier and a problem solver. And I'm still growing in that area. And I hope to spend the rest of my career being better at that. And that's one of the things that, that Gray has helped me get better at was, um, was, was being that diagnostician. And so for that, I'm, I'm eternally grateful to him and to, um, you know, the model of practice that he's put out to our profession. Nice. Yeah. Trip. Appreciate you coming on, Don. Um, I think, uh, I think it's been a good discussion of uh, how we each um, use some of some of the screen uh, and and how we kind of structure um, what we're looking to do with with our evaluations and uh, and then reassessments. I do have one closing thought though, and it was a quote from one of my buddies who we used to work for a, a high volume group. And, um, that's a nice way to put it, Erson. I, I really liked, I like that. Yeah. Right. We're done. So <laughs> and we're done. One, one of the other, one of the other clinic, um, managers was just there forever. And she was just saying, you know, 
it just, I've just been here forever. I haven't gotten a raise in so long. And it's been so long. It's been so long since I got a raise. And he's like, you know, at some point, this is just your fault, right? It's your fault that these things are happening to you. Mm. Right. So that's just, that, that was just one of those things. It's like Don realized it was his fault. He needed to make the change. And it's like you were unhappy with your current situation or the quality care is less than what you want it to be. There are other options out there for you. And at, at some point, I know everyone's got to feed their family and everything, but um, sometimes the biggest rewards come with the biggest risks. Right, Gene? Right. Absolutely. Well, I mean, this, Don, I'm, gl- I'm really glad you shared that story um, about you kind of uh, almost leaving because it's an incredibly prevalent problem that we hear a ton from the from the DPT students, from the even DPT students going through the third year before they even become uh, a clinician. But definitely the fresh PT is like, between um, zero to kind of three years, and we, we get so many questions, and we get so many, so many fires essentially. Of I don't want to do this. I'm seriously thinking about leaving. And um, Jeff Moore and I do a, a mentorship group, and we've had these conversations, and it's incredibly tough. And um, it, it it hurts to have these conversations because kind of going back to what we talked about earlier is, you know, these these new clinicians they come out. And th- their passion gets extinguished within the first 12 months, but they have to have mm-hmm. perseverance because they have student loans, they have society, they have mom and dad, they have like all, all these external factors crashing down and pushing down on them. And they all they have to do is grind now. Like that's all they have left. And I mean, that who, want, who wants to live like that, especially when you go to, to school for your like half of your entire or most of your adult life. And then you've had, you had this dream about helping people and working with people and your dream doesn't match reality and that that's that's a hard hard life to and, and reality to deal with man and um I'm, I'm glad that you shared how you got through that because i think that's going to help a lot of people absolutely yeah you're welcome i i think adulting is hard facing the facts is hard i think uh, when you're used to being in school for a long time, addicted to successive climactic experiences, ex- uh, you know, attached to taking holidays off and summers off, the real world is tough. And when you're not getting results and you're not satiated with your practice and your skill set, I think it's very hard to, to face those facts. And so you have a choice of, you know, staying where you are or uh, choosing learning over money or choosing learning over comfort. And I wouldn't go back on that. Uh, I have four sons, six and under, and I live in a two bedroom home. Um, and it's okay. You know, it's, it's fine. I don't need nearly as much stuff as, uh, as you know, society would tell me I need. And you're happy, right? I am. I'm happy because I get to go to work every day and I love what I do. And I've got great patients and great students and people want to be there. My clinic is, is a, is a really exciting place to be in my little community. And I'm proud of that. Very proud of that. Would you say that's happiness or fulfillment? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Um, I'm fulfilled by it. I feel like I've um, fulfilled my responsibility as a leader and as a as a as a clinician, as a teacher. Uh, and I also get a lot of happiness out of seeing transformation in my students and my patients. So I guess to answer your question it would be both. Awesome. Very cool, man. Well, thanks for taking the time. It was, it was a great chat, very informative on, on a lot of levels. Um, if if, uh, if our listeners want to find you, ask you more questions, where can they reach out? Sure. I'm on all the basic social media platforms, Twitter and Facebook, and I, uh, I, I really enjoy 
connecting with uh, with colleagues with with our uh, uh, colleagues on on social media that are that are passionate. I I think we need to continue to connect via those ways and and have good phone conversations. I I I personally I prefer having in depth conversation over the phone as opposed to uh, Twitter sphere any of the other uh, platforms. I I like having um, having dialogue. For sure, there are no short phone calls with Don Reagan. I can tell you that for a fact. <laughs> in in-depth conversations about mastery in life. That's uh I'll take that. Um for, on Twitter if if somebody if if you you, you got to screen people. You can't just put out your phone number um unless you're John Child who's the only one that put his phone number out. Um what what's what's your uh, what's your Twitter um yeah, handle? Yeah, just my name, Don Reagan. Awesome. All right, so we'll put all of Don's information on Updoc Media under Podcast Therapy Insider, so we'll put all that stuff out there. If you have any questions, definitely reach out to Don, send him a nice tweet, and then maybe you could have a nice in-depth phone conversation about all kinds of interesting things. So, Don, again, thanks a lot, man. It was it was really a pleasure to chat with you. All right, thank you. Have a good night. All right, see you. All right, hope you enjoyed that episode with Don Reagan obviously a lot covered talked about a ton that I think is pretty relevant whether you're a DPT student or a practitioner I'm sure most of you and I hear this a lot from students and and new grads from the physical therapy world and again I'm sure this this parallels with most other professions if not all uh, that when you when you leave when you're in school for so long and you actually have to practice and you have to work that the the idea that you created of what you want to do is not always the reality. And that's pretty tough, especially if you can't match it up or you you don't have the pathway for that to happen. So I hope that this helps you, that you're not alone, that there's people willing to help, but you got to put yourself out there and reach out. And we're always happy and and love the conversations. And if if you need somebody to bounce off some of these ideas or some of your troubles, please don't hesitate. Reach out to us at Updoc Media. Um, you could always email me, gene at updocmedia.com, ben at updocmedia.com, Urson and Joe. Hit us up on Twitter at Therapy Insiders, at the OMPT, at Joe DPT, at Dr. Ben Fung. We're always there for you. If you have any questions or you just need to just vent, feel free to reach out. As always, thank you for listening. Let us know what you thought of our new intro music. And we'll catch you again next week on Therapy Insiders Podcast from Updoc Media.